0: joining me for this uh, talk on uh, Marx's notion of class conflict. Um, I've been keen to talk about this for a while because I think it's a concept that is kind of widely misunderstood Uh, and then in terms of what's going on currently within the world nationally in America and internationally uh, it might uh, connect with some of that in some sort of way so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start off by talking about uh, Marx Marx's notion of class conflict, uh, going to look at it in relation to um, uh, an area of psychoanalysis as well. We're going to get into that. Uh, and then maybe kind of um, see uh, if it kind of has any direct connection with what's going on. But I wanted to talk indirectly about uh, the current situation because I've lived in America for eight years now on and off. So I've been here for you know a fairly long time, but I also feel still like an outsider. So still someone who doesn't understand the history of the country and doesn't understand a lot of what's going on. And so I wouldn't feel comfortable or uh, feel able to address uh, some of those issues um, uh, in terms of racism, uh, in terms of kind of the current kind of protests. So I thought I'd take a different kind of angle. Um, However, I uh, am from Northern Ireland and there might be some interesting connections to make with uh, the environment that I grew up in and what's going on. Uh, So I grew up during the Troubles. Uh, The Troubles was a 30 year low intensity uh, uh, ethnic national conflict. Uh, It's low intensity in that it was a war and it was a militarized place, uh, but people went on with their daily lives. uh, And yet uh, there were bombs and shootings and all of that kind of stuff. So it's like a 30 year war. Um, and 2% of the population were either killed or injured uh, during that time. So it was a very uh, you know, serious conflict. Um, and then it ended in 1998, officially, with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement is widely seen as one of the most successful or probably the most successful modern peace process. Uh, even more successful potentially than uh, what we've seen in South Africa. So, and one of the issues actually that was central to the Good Friday Agreement uh, centered on the police. Um, Basically, it was seen that the police were overly militarized and sectarian. And it wasn't a case of just uh, firing a few people, getting rid of a few rotten apples, but rather the whole force needed to be disbanded and a new police force had to be created. So that was quite a big deal um, that everybody agreed on eventually to disband the RUC, they were called, and to set up the PSNI. Um, they were going to be called the Northern Ireland Police Service, but that's shortened to NIPS, and people thought NIPS probably isn't great. <laughs> so that was shortened to uh, you know Police Service in Northern Ireland, PSNI. Um, so yeah, some of the issues around policing um, are not dissimilar from, from what was going on in Northern Ireland. Uh, And basically everybody was uh, at the top level, was uh, given early retirement or got rid of, and basically they created a new police force that was much more connected to community engagement. uh, you know, in, in one way, you could say that uh, a police force that unified everybody because everybody hated them, right So as long as, long as it's equal opportunity <laughs> can unify everybody, but actually, the truth is they were trying to get a police force that represented everybody in the community. So I might, we might get to that at some point where I might do a different uh, talk about that. but let's get started with just purely some philosophy, um, some political philosophy, and talk about Karl Marx so marx uh, was a hegelian philosopher uh so basically hegel who was writing in the um 1700s 16 1700s 18th century was the most significant philosopher and still is considered to be one of the you know the greatest philosophers and so people who were writing after hegel all had to engage with his work in some way whether they were accepting it or rejecting it and there was a group called the young hegelians who were politically radical individuals um, who took some of Marx's thinking and they left other parts behind. But they took Marx's notion of dialectics and contradiction and Marx was the most prominent of the young Hegelians. and What Marx did is he took Hegel's notion of dialectics and applied it to the economy. And so that was one of the great kind of uh, insights or movements of of, of Marx is applying Hegelian dialectics into political economy. Now dialectics, very briefly, just want to define that, and we'll just you know very I'll be plodding along very slowly. But we'll get there in the end. Um, dialectics for Hegel is a way in which um, uh, the universe and individuals and history moves. And basically, Hegel argued that things move through contradiction. So uh, even on a very everyday level, um, you might have a problem, there's a problem that you face. And as you work through that problem, you know, you hit these contradictions. And as you resolve that initial problem, what Hegel would say is you get to, you know, maybe a more complex position, but that itself generates new contradictions. And as you work through those contradictions, you move forward. So it's not progressive in the sense of you're moving um, in some very kind of uniform, straight angled, straight kind of shot towards a future. Um, You're bouncing between contradictions. Um, And so Hegel in his book, Phenomenology of Spirit, he basically outlines how life and self-consciousness arises out of a series of contradictions that that are resolved and then create new contradictions. And eventually that leads leads to self-consciousness. But a very simple way of thinking about dialectics might be in terms of evolutionary theory. So in evolutionary theory, you have a type of antagonism within biological organisms and that antagonism develops uh, change and complexity. So there's no kind of teleological dimension to evolution as such. It's kind of blind but through the kind of contradictions that are that generate within the animal and between the animal and the environment that the animal is in uh, the animal changes and develops and so Hegel kind of gives a philosophical way of thinking about everything in in those kinds of terms and that might become clear when we look at how Marx uses it uh, in economic theory so in the same way that Hegel uh, looks at how consciousness develops very slowly through a number of contradictions. He talks about, they're called sense certainty, perception, force and understanding, and then self-consciousness, it kind of it develops very slowly. Marx says that our uh, economic life develops very slowly through the resolving of contradictions that create deeper contradictions. And so Marx talks about different modes of production. Uh, and a mode of production is the way that a given society uh, produces and distributes commodities so a mode of production uh, is simply the way that any society creates and distributes commodities Uh, and a commodity is anything that involves human labor right so uh, take one example Uh, even if someone picks up a shell on a beach and dusts it down and sells it on Etsy as an ornament. That's a commodity because it's a shell, so it's part of nature, but there's human labor has gone into it. So someone has gone down to the beach, they have chosen that shell out of all of the other shells that they could pick. They've dusted it down, they've created an online shop, and they're selling that commodity to other people. So a commodity is basically anything that mixes nature and labor together. And so that's everything from shells on the beach to the camera that I'm talking into, to housing. These are all commodities. And moods of production are those, the different ways in which we kind of get commodities to circulate. Um, now, Marx identifies seven uh, modes of production. And um, they are, there's like the tribal mode of production, the Asiatic mode of production, There's a kind of slave mode of production, feudal mode of production, capitalist mode of production, and then socialist mode of production and communist mode of production. So there's basically the different modes of production and socialism and communism are kind of to come or have been tried in other countries, but basically we live within the capitalist mode of production. And I'm just gonna outline the movement from uh, let's say, slavery, to feudalism, to capitalism, to see how this notion of contradiction plays out. So within a slave society, basically there are people who are in control and they force other people to do everything to create the goods, to create the commodities. Um, and then the people who are in control are able to use those um, and able to um, uh, kind of like, um, enjoy the product of those people who are working. And this is the most obvious form of oppressive society, right? It's hard to find or think of anything more oppressive than a, what Hegel calls a lord and bondsman community, where there are few people in control. They own other people and they force those people to work for them. And, you know, Marx is saying that, well, it's obvious to see the contradiction, the antagonisms, the deadlocks that will arise in that kind of society, right? Tensions will arise. Um Eventually, there will be explosions of violence, and the slaves will will rise up and kind of either rise up and overf- overthrow the masters or there'll be so much unrest that something else takes its place um, So in a, in a master slave kind of economy, mode of production, we can see the antagonisms that arise. Um, the solution to those antagonisms is feudalism. So out of the antagonisms of a, of a slave system, you have a feudal system. And a feudal system is still very oppressive, probably just as oppressive, but it's a little bit more hidden, right? Um, in a feudal society, people produce goods. Uh, then they have to give like a third of those goods to the, the lord and the lady in the manor, right? And if they don't do that, they get killed. Uh, but then they get to keep the other, uh, other two thirds and get to go to the market and exchange with other people. So there's a little bit more freedom, right? You're, you're giving all of this stuff away to somebody who gives you very little in exchange. Uh, maybe if you're invaded by another country, they have an army, but they're mostly doing that for themselves, right? So you're not getting very much, you're just giving you know, a third of your goods away to religious people or to the the aristocrats and then as I say the rest of it you go into the market and you exchange your corn for chickens etc etc. Now a difference with feudalism and the slave society is feudalism is less uh, overtly violent Uh, so a lot of the reason a lot of the way that people are kept in control is through ideology, uh, through basically saying to people, this is the way God made it, right? Some people in charge, some people not in charge. Like there's that hymn, all things bright and beautiful that has the line, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. Right? So that's a type of ideology that says everything is in its place. If you're poor, it's because you're supposed to be poor. If they're rich, it's because they're supposed to be rich. And also then there's usually a little bit of extra in there, which is, but in the next life, you'll have it as well, right? You always have to have a little bit of uh, hope for people that they can one day get what they don't have. And that hope looks different in different societies. We've got the lottery today, but in the past, maybe it was heaven, right? Um, but of course force is always there like if, if basically education you know you're teaching the kids in school and in church and you're giving them this ideology but if they don't obey then you've also got violence direct violence that you can use but it's a little bit more hidden now within feudalism uh, there's an interesting thing is right there is this injustice because you have to give you've you've produce this product, and in one third of it, you have to just give away. But the other two thirds uh, kind of gets its value. So when you go into the marketplace and you're exchanging with other people, when it's working at its best, you get your value. If, if you know, you know, your corn pile is worth six eggs, you get six eggs. Of course, there are people who steal, there's people who lie and deceive, but if everything's working good, then you get what your product is worth. Now there's no individual telling you what it's worth, it's just kind of worked out in the market. Everybody's in there negotiating, bartering, etc., and you get you, you kind of it all boils down to you get what your product is worth in the market. Now feudalism but has its oppression, and eventually that begins to bubble up, that contradiction, that deadlock bubbles up, and then we enter capitalism. And capitalism is, again, a slightly more removed form of oppression for Marx that you don't see directly, right? So in feudalism, there's a small group of people who are above the law. There's a small group of people who don't have to play by the rules that everybody else plays by. Um, But in capitalism, everybody is equal under the law, right? There's nobody above the law. Now, of course in practice there are people who are above the law people who are outside the law but when it's working perfectly and we'll get i want to get to this in a second about why i talk about the perfectly working system but when it's working perfectly everybody is equal right everybody enters the market you cannot be coerced into selling something or buying something at a certain price it's a free market you can go into it, you buy and you sell. You don't have to give anything you've produced away, except for some taxes, uh, you know, for you know, p- policing and the roads, et etc. et cetera. Um, But Marx talks about, right, there is a contradiction. It's just kind of hidden, right? So what is the hidden contradiction in capitalism? Well, Marx says, oh, and right, here's where I'm gonna talk about the perfect system, right? When Marx is talking about feudalism and slave society and capitalism, he's never talking about them in relation to how they fail to live up to their ideals, right? Because any apologist of capitalism, for example, will freely admit that the system doesn't work perfectly, right? Of course it doesn't, right? Um, but Marx always avoids talking about how the system working badly. Uh, because that always gives a person the way out, which is, yeah, you're right. Uh, when it's working better, then that problem won't exist. So Marx is always looking at a system when it's working at its best, not when it's working badly. Um, and it's kind of like kind of in science, where you have, say, Newtonian laws of motion, right? In reality, you never see Newtonian laws kind of operating directly, right? So a body remains in movement unless something acts against it. Uh, These are kind of like theoretical, pure notions that help us understand everything, but they're kind of theoretical. It's like you never see a perfect circle, but we all know what a perfect circle is. So again, Marx is looking at these systems when they work perfectly, always knowing that they never do work perfectly. Um, But within the perfect system, Marx says there's something There's one commodity that never gets what it's worth, right? So when you go into the market, and under under feudalism, you go into the market, you have your products, they basically get what they're worth. Um, uh, In capitalism, uh, now this this commodity exists to some extent in previous modes of production, but this is where it becomes solidified uh, and central. There's one commodity that never gets its value in the marketplace. And it never gets its value, not because the system isn't working, but because the system is working. In fact, if this product got its value, it would mean that the system wasn't working. So there is one commodity, a magical commodity that is in the marketplace that is always undervalued. And that is labor power, right? So if you go into the marketplace And you sell your labor power to somebody and you say, I will work for you for a year for $30,000, right? The person who accepts that, and you're free to offer it and they're free to accept it. um, The person who is accepting that, they are calculating that your labor power will generate $90,000, let's say, of value. So they pay you $30,000 to get $90,000 of value. And maybe they take, so they take all that 90, they give you 30, maybe 30 gets put into the factory to kind of keep everything running and then 30,000 goes to shareholders, right? But it never gets its value. And Marx says that this is this little antagonism, this little deadlock that is always in operation that is central to, to the, the functioning of capitalism. So, Just to to differentiate what I'm saying from two kind of misreadings of Marx. One misreading of Marx is that class is just one way of looking at things, equal to other antagonisms that exist. Um, And the other is class is a central antagonism that exists all the time, right? There is a central oppressor, oppressive kind of reality to social life that you can't get rid of. Marx is kind of saying neither of those um, the latter is with the former might be called intersectional Marxism and the latter would be called class reductionist mm. Marxism um, Marx is saying that class conflict is necessary within capitalism but not necessary in all forms of social interaction so it's a it's a kind of necessity of capitalism you cannot have capitalism without this class antagonism um, but you can get rid of the class antagonism if you get rid of the class antagonism you also get rid of capitalism because it is in the in the words of like uh, it's a symptom, which is a symptom that holds you together something that uh uh that holds you as like if your symptom is a contradiction that is within you that uh keeps you together as a subject i'll say I'm, i'll probably come back to that notion of symptom in a second so, Marx is saying that there is this undervalued dimension and the people who kind of exploit that is, is one class and the people who are exploited are the other class. But not everybody is equally exploited, right? Um, and often we can go years without any problems. But this antagonism always eventually erupts in some way, whether it's a recession, a depression, inflation, um, it, it always eventually, there's a, there's a kind of like a, a shaking down, a kind of a, a violent eruption within capitalism to try to kind of like uh, refix everything. So Engels actually used the example of, I think he talked about a house that's badly built. Uh, A house is badly built will stay standing for a while but eventually it'll collapse Uh, when it collapses we don't say oh gravity has finally started right gravity has always been at work but only at this point do we see gravity at work like pulling the house down and it's a similar thing that the antagonism is always there but sometimes we see the eruption of that antagonism in some sort of way within society. Um, Okay. Uh, To kind of draw psychoanalysis in here a little bit. um, One of the things in psychoanalysis, one of the questions that psychoanalysis kind of invented really uh, um, and a in a sense of it becomes a central question that you wouldn't really have thought to ask before psychoanalysis is when you ask somebody, what enjoyment are you getting from your symptom? Um, and the idea is that often we get something out of our compulsive repetitions and the, the various symptoms that we have, there's something we're getting out of and they cause us suffering, but it's also doing something and a psychoanalyst is often trying to find out what is it you're getting out of that symptom that means you keep returning to it right you don't leave it you keep going back and a similar question kind of invented by sociology is the question of what does a society get out of what utility does a society get from its crime right because so for someone like Durkheim, again crime is seen as a rejection of society but he sees that no crime can be um, a necessary aspect of society. It can be something that society requires in some sort of way. And this is an interesting question because if you have a couple, for example, and they're arguing over uh, something silly like someone leaving the whole light on overnight, right? And there's a massive argument about this. Uh, this is a sign of displacement. This is a sign in which This couple, there is a real problem, and that real problem is then being put onto something else. And that something else is the evidence of a real problem within the relationship. But as long as they're arguing about that, they're able to kind of keep going out, they keep staying in the relationship. As long as they don't face the central antagonism, they can have these little silly arguments and yet stay together. And often in psychoanalysis, what you're trying to do is you're always trying to look at the symptom, the real meaning of the symptom, what it's describing, what truth is it telling. Because the symptom is the site of truth. The symptom is telling you something um, about the couple. And once you start to bring that to the surface, you get to the central core issue. You get to the santom. From the symptom to the santom. A symptom being a contradiction within Your body uh, that you can get rid of that you can untie but eventually that symptom leads you to the Santon, and that symptom is a sign of the central antagonism and so Marx is always saying that um, ultimately there is a type of oppression within our economic structure but not everybody's equally affected by it often some group is made the bearer of that violence so some individual or some group some community bears the violence of the whole society they become the scapegoat right they're either they're groups that are despised or hated or they're groups that are held down that are prevented from accessing uh, services and goods that other people have access to and this is one of the ways that for Marx, capitalism continues to run. It actually runs precisely because it has to. Uh, it has to basically reduce, in the words of Todd McGowan, it has to reduce contradiction to opposition. The inherent contradiction and antagonism within the system has to be. Uh, what, and this is what ideology is in its purest really, ideology is what reduces that contradiction, prevents you from seeing it, turns it into something contingent, finds some group to blame for the problems, or puts all of the violence of the system onto a particular group. So actually within the work of Hegel, you have this, uh, when he talks about uh, a society of what he, that he calls lord and bondsman, right? It's this master-slave society. He says that the truth of that society is not found in the Lord, but it's found in the bondsman. The violence of the society is kind of, um, is, uh, what's the word when a company gets some other company to produce something? It's um, uh, exported. There's a better word than exported, but it's, the violence of the system is put onto a small group, and they bear the brunt of it. But they also, in both Hegel and Marx, That group doesn't just bear the brunt of the violence, the wider violence of society. They're also the voice of God, basically. They are the site of revolution. They are the site of transformation because they feel the violence of the society that is being disavowed by everybody else, right? So in the Lord-Bondsman model, the Lord doesn't experience directly the violence of the system. Now, the funny thing is, it's still there, right? The winners lose and the losers lose doubly. There's a sense in which the system doesn't work for anybody to some extent, but some people are oblivious to the violence of the system. They only feel it dimly in the senses of melancholy or senses of kind of ennui or whatever, right? Um, But they don't feel it in a violent way. The truth is put onto another group of people and marx calls that the proletariat right the proletariat is the basically the scapegoat the the people who carry the the you know in scapegoating mechanism the sin of the community they carry the lack of the of the community um you'll see this by the way in mein kampf Um, hitler is constantly talking about um, organic whole a community that is organically whole and complete and yet is disturbed by a virus, by something that is threatening it, which is the Jewish community. So the Jewish community become that which threatens to destabilize German society. But actually, the Jewish people, uh, the, the concept of the Jew for the fascist isn't a threat to the system, it's actually what keeps the system together. Because now you have a shared enemy. Instead of having to look at the violence and the problems within the system, you can put it onto another group and say, if only we got rid of them, you know, they're the problem over there, right? And then they have to carry the, the violence of the system. And the truth is, if you get rid of the scapegoat, you don't then get, you know, so here's the fascist um, uh, uh, promise, is an organic wholeness, a society that runs like a body, right? That where every organ has its place and everything feeds everything else, right? Uh, where we are close and connected to the earth, right? Where we're away from a technological type of worldview, uh, where we're back to the soil. And this, uh, uh, this is disturbed, this possibility that can happen is disturbed by the reality of this Jewish community who and in different kind of fascist uh, uh, literature are either controlling the financial uh, world or they're uh, you know, bringing in moral, uh, uh, they're, they're morally corrupt and they're corrupting the German spirit or they're overly abstract and, and preventing the Jewish people from connecting with the earth, right? All of these different ideas, but they are the problem. And yet, in reality, they, that idea allows the fascist to keep that fantasy alive. And the more you get rid of the thing that you think you have to get rid of, the closer you get to realizing that the, the fantasy doesn't exist. So within Russia, Soviet Russia, you had the kulaks, right? The kulaks were wealthy peasants. They had slightly more money than other peasants. They had uh, tractors and tools and that kind of thing. And at one point, kulaks were seen by the state as the enemy of the people, right? They were to blame, get rid of the kulaks, everything will run smoothly, right? But they were too successful, too fervent, right? So they started to persecute and kill the kulaks. And what happened, as the Kulaks began to disappear, it started to become more and more obvious that that perfect society that existed on the other side of getting rid of the Kulaks didn't actually exist. So the definition of Kulak began to expand and expand, and it got to the point where a Kulak is just someone who maybe has a little bit more money than other people, right? Or a Kulak then is just someone who thinks like a Kulak. Or then it gets to the point of a kulak is someone who would think like a kulak if they had the chance, right? So basically, the enemy had to exist to hold the community together, to help them, to help them remain blind to the violence and the contradictions within society as a whole. And so within scapegoat theory, the, the enemy, the thing that you think you have to get rid of, the one who carries the violence of the community, who's downtrodden and destroyed, they are not the thing to get rid of or even the group to be kind to or the group to do good deeds for. They are the site of prophecy. They are the site of truth. They are the truth of the violence of the wider system. So put it in religious terms, you do not do good works by visiting people who are in prison, right? You are not the, the you're not the kind of the visiting of God, right? You are not Christ entering into the prison uh, doing good works. People in the prisons are God to you because the prison system is not the problem. It's the solution to a problem. It's the solution to a problem of the violence within society whether it's unemployment, underemployment, mental health provision, lack of access to, to goods and services, alienation, right? All of these issues are structural issues. And so they are put into a group that can be managed. You put walls around. So it's not, they are the good news to us. They are the voice of repentance to society or the homeless population, whatever. They are the eruption of the truth that we cannot speak just like a symptom in our body is the eruption of a truth that we cannot speak to ourselves. So it is the prophet. Uh, Lacan plays on the notion of saint Tom, which in French sounds like holy man, right? So your symptom is the prophet who is telling you the truth. And when you hear a prophet telling you the truth, you've got like two options. You either ignore the prophet and, uh, you know, I've read the book that doesn't go well, right? Or you repent, which means you change your ways, right? You change something and when you change something then there is transformation and uh and salvation right so again within this Marxist theory is that that in the system of violence there is always displacement and displacement is scapegoating displacement is where you take the violence and you put it on some group and they bear the burden but they are not the So this is key, they are not like the, they are the victims, but they are also the sight of God. I mean, you have this actually inbuilt into Christian theology, the conversion of Paul is Paul is trying to get rid of this small group of people called the Christians. And it doesn't, they could be anything, they're just the scapegoated group, because he's thinking we get rid of them and we'll get back to pure religion. So for Paul, this small group of people were perverting the true religion, and they had to be got rid of. And then he has the psychoanalytic insight, right? He hears a voice saying, why are you persecuting me? In other words, God, where is God? Not in the sky, not you know, all over, not you know, whatever. God is in the oppressed. God is in the proletariat, or God is in the bondsman, right? God is in that space, why? Not in any airy-fairy way, not in any mystical way, not in any supernatural way, but for Hegel, purely because that group of people directly experience the horror of the system in their body, in their blood, right in their actions. They also, by the way, um, they can't deny the violence and they are also working. They're creating, they are the productive force of society. Um, And because they're the productive force of society, they are a skilled group of people who are oppressed, you feel the violence and you have strength and ability now as a sideline this is a, this is important i think because one of the ways to control the scapegoated community today i think is to get everybody to believe in the ideology of the bondsman is to kind of get everybody somehow to believe in the fantasy for marx i think he would say the fantasy of consumerist capitalism even if you are destroyed by that and the way that happens is you you kind of, everything around you solidifies that view, every magazine, every movie, every TV show, everything solidifies that ideology and that idea. And then two things are offered, two additional things. One is, um, so the, well, one is the fantasy, and the fantasy is where you can imagine getting all of that stuff. And then two, there has to be a way for you to be able to do it, right? Now, it's a minor way, it might be scholarships, it might be the lottery, it might be, you know, whatever it is, right, what do you call in America where if you're really good at sports, you can get get money given to you and can kind of buy you out of poverty, right? So there always has to be these small ways that allow the fantasy to exist, right? The lottery allows you to fantasize about winning the lottery. If there was no lottery, you wouldn't really be able to fantasize if there was no way to get there. And then your discontent would rise and rise. But as long as there's a little promise, you buy the lottery ticket, you have the fantasy. So the lottery ticket is the material support of the fantasy. And the fantasy is designed to pacify you. Now, today, there's a number of ways to pacify a population. So there's the military way, military, and there's also Hollywood, I think. So, uh, you know, uh, you're pacified through Uh, entertainment um, which you know just begins to drag on everybody I think and that you also are pacified through a militarized environment the judicial system police system etc etc but these are different ways to try to pacify the the group that carries the uh, disavoid violence uh, of the wider society so then just to kind of close this part up I want to finish with this notion of just connecting the symptom and the Santon. So the symptoms are the eruptions of, of violence and the eruptions of protest and the eruptions of all these where, where this antagonism erupts in some way in society. What we have to do, I think, is we have to see within the symptom um, the cry of the Santon. So remember the difference between the symptom and the Santom is a symptom can be got rid of, but if you don't get rid of the Santom, you'll just create new symptoms. So new sectarianisms, new, uh, new like, like uh, there's a fantasy in capitalism often if we get rid of the bad CEOs, if we get rid of insider trading, if we get rid of un- unregulated banks, etc., etc., we get everything working well, everything would be great. For Marx, that's, capitalism needs to fail. It always needs Something that's not working and then we think that if only we fixed that little bit Then everything would be smooth. It requires that because if we fixed everything then we would only be confronted directly with the violence And you know that would be too much for us Um, So within Marxist theory, that's what we have to do. We have to kind of listen to the symptoms and show how they are the eruptions of uh, a group who are materializing the santon. They are materialising the central contradiction. And if we're able to unpick and unknot that central contradiction, class, which is class conflict, class antagonism, right? We're able to unknot class antagonism, capitalism itself unknots, right? And then we can think about what that looks like. And I'll give you one example of what this looks like in politics, democracy, right? Because the point and this is, this is why I'm not a Marxist, I'm more Hegelian, because Marx does seem to provide this sense in which we'll eventually get to a place without any antagonism. But the answer for me is, how do we not get to a society without antagonism? I think that's a fantasy. But how do we come to a society in which antagonism is productive, is acknowledged and is dispersed uh, throughout? So not carried by one group of people. And there's names for this in different ways, but I'll just take politics. The name for this in politics is democracy in democracy the antagonisms of various individuals and various groups of people are allowed to be seen and to be felt and to operate but in various forms of democracy the antagonism is used in a productive way so the antagonism in biology is called evolution i mentioned that so evolution the antagonism within the the biological body produces diversity and produces life um, in politics the, the antagonisms of society are found to uh they're they're held together and they they bring something productive through democracy and so that's kind of where i think we have to aim towards like if we have a vision of what we're aiming towards as a society it's like how do we stop one group of people how do we stop disavowing and pretending this violence isn't there in the system, in our everyday lives. Every time we buy a breakfast cereal, the, the injustice is there. We think it's a product that's separate from the world, but the, the what got that those cornflakes onto that shelf required tens of thousands of people all over the world, required this entire network. But we're so divorced, all we have is this weird commodity. It's like magical, eh, uh, Marx calls it a theological thing, you know, it's like a magical thing. Um, This violence is everywhere, but how do we not disavow it? How do we, you know, how do we bring it to the surface? How do we stop one group of people from carrying that violence, becoming the scapegoat? And how does that, how can we imagine um, this type of antagonism becoming something productive rather than destructive in our world? Okay, thanks for listening. I'm just going to have a little look at the, uh, Comments and see if there's any questions and by the way, you know, I hope there's back and forth here I don't wanna I want to I don't want there to be people going oh you're right or you're wrong it's, it's more I want this to be part of a conversation and um, You know, so thank you for being part of it. All right. let me see. It's always hard to actually see questions uh, Okay, Chris says Pete You and I both produce intellectual property. Thank you, by the way. Hopefully I do. It's probably, a lot of people think it's pseudo-intellectual property. Not what you do, what I do. (laughs) But um, let's see. So you say, um, where do we fit in Marx's system? I have in mind that both of us on occasion charge for access to it without actually doing any more work. Right, so yeah. So what do you do with intellectual property? Well, yeah, I mean, this is where... Uh, we can get into like a lot of nuts and bolts but uh, technically it's no different a a commodity is anything that takes nature and labor and so intellectual property is nature your brain and uh labor right you sit and you think i spend a couple of hours usually a night just thinking about things (laughs) um and um and it's a commodity and i go into the market and I just, I sell them, you know, sometimes I give it away for free, sometimes I'm, but the only reason why I can do what I do is because people support me. So, the, it's kind of the same. Um, The the issue isn't commodities, and the issue for Marx isn't obviously that we need to have markets and distribute goods. It's um, how do we do that in a way in which, kind of, uh, doesn't create surplus value. I didn't get into this. There's a thing called the labor theory of value and surplus value, which we'll leave for another time. But the idea is, I mean, I've talked about surplus value whenever I am paid 30 grand a year and I produce $90,000 a year, what I produce beyond the 30,000 is surplus value. So we create the surplus value and it's all about what to do with that. Never really had a proper job. Thankfully, a couple of times briefly, but, um, I don't, don't like the system, but, um, one solution to this is Richard Wolff. And some people I know don't, don't like his solution. I think there's something really interesting to it. Richard Wolff, he, he, it's called Democracy at Work, right? I don't know if he calls it that or other people call it Democracy at Work. But this is like kind of like a cooperative where um, you have a business and everybody who works for the business uh, gets to vote on who is the CEO and gets to have some say in what happens to the surplus value. And so there's a potentially a way to have like a, you know, a business in which um, the surplus value um, is distributed among the people who create it. Uh, and that can be a way of thinking about this. But I know you're asking about intellectual property, but I just threw that in pretty much with everything else. But you're right, that is a very difficult um, area when it comes to intellectual property is a very different type of commodity than me producing uh, a widget Uh, let's see so i don't think i did a very good answer for you sorry um i'm just running through can't get to everybody let's see there's kate um if the the santum is a symptom for lacan does that make capitalism a perverse structure okay so kate is asking so remember the, the difference between the symptom and the symptom that's taken from Lacan's work for everybody else. Um, where basically Lacan is looking at psychosis near the and he's trying to figure out what is the cure for someone who suffers from psychosis, and and he in a nutshell he says that the, the cure for someone with with psychosis is what what he calls the symptom and it's basically a symptom that holds you together. You find something that binds your psychic life. Uh, it can be your work, it can be a novel, it can be mu- creation of music, it can be whatever it is, but you find a kind of a vocation, and that vocation um, allows you to, I, I, yeah, you probably get too into Lecanian Psychoanalysis, but it allows you to, to become the father of your name. It allows you to, um, uh, it holds you together basically. But, but then you can kind of see that the Santom is not just something for psychotics, probably the Santom is something that has universal validity. So your question is, uh, if the if the Santom is a symptom for Lacan, does that make capitalism first structure? Is capitalism a perverse structure? So again, there's three, there's three structures. There's, uh, the neurotic, the perverse and the psychotic and I'd have to think about that, Kate. Um, uh, I don't think so. My, my gut reaction is no, capitalism, um, is, uh, capitalism allows people to be any of those three structures. I, yeah, I have to think about that. Let me think about it and then I'll come back to you. Um, there's a certain way in which capitalism produces neurotic subjects, however, because The neurotic subject is always the one who doesn't feel like he's questioning themselves who's always kind of doesn't feel comfortable with what they have or the person they're with is always questioning who they are and capitalism is able to mobilize, or weaponize that neurosis to kind of get you to work right so you're always kind of moving forward always trying to kind of like find uh Uh, you know you're always trying to find the right person or the right work or whatever so so capitalism is is very good at mobilizing I guess uh, neurosis um, in people but I'll have to think about your question very good question Um, Helen you said you talked about military um, and Hollywood as it means to keep people contained do you want to delineate the differences between the overt and less visible ideological means, for example, cultural capitalism. <laughs> yeah, um, that's very good. So there's yeah overt and covert means of pacification. So militarism is an overt form of, of pacification, and the truth is it happens very rarely, um, it, because like the state you know doesn't want to show overt violence too often, right? That just degenerates more disease so the preferred is the uh, covert pacification and um, a very famous essay on this um, by um, Altazar uh, who talks about but basically we're talking about the school we're talking about the judicial system we're talking about the church system anything that's kind of like the the Hollywood right these these are ways to kind of like feed the ideology keep you pacified Um, and so Then you're saying, uh, let's see, Uh, do you, what's the linear difference between the two, Um, e.g. cultural capitalism. So cultural capitalism is a really interesting term. You know the way people use the term uh, cultural Marxism, and they talk about identitarianism as being culturally Marxist, and this is uh, the big argument by Jordan Peterson. Uh, Helen's referring to this idea, which I think is much more credible, that it's actually cultural capitalism. Uh, and I think this term is used by Angela Nagel, uh, Helen, you were the one who told me about it, but on the um, What's Left podcast, but cultural capitalism, so uh, the argument of Jordan Peterson is that Marxism failed as a political and economic system with kind of the fall of the Soviet Union. And so what happened in France and in Germany is that Marxism started to be used in a cultural way to to critique texts uh, whether those texts were books or films or you know whatever so Marxism gradually um, entered into the humanities and then eventually got over into America and then got into the university system and created um, identitarian politics Um, however in relation to what I'm saying it fits better to say, no, that's cultural capitalism. Cultural capitalism can be described as a way to keep people invested in capitalism by um, getting them to fight about things that are that are not central. So get you to think about, it's like displacement. When I said that the, the couple here arguing about leaving the whole light on, As long as they're arguing about that they're not getting to the central issue and therefore they stay together and let's imagine that it's better for that couple to separate right and so they're still together and they have all of these little arguments but that's the very thing that's stopping them from breaking up because they haven't directly seen and addressed the central antagonism so you can say that the Hollywood, and this is going to be more controversial. The, the Hollywood ideology today is a form of cultural capitalism because as long as we're arguing at an identitarian level, um, we're not we're not glimpsing the truth, uh, and therefore we're staying rooted within the consumerist capitalist model. So that's what that's what cultural capitalism means, and I would like that term to catch on. It's not my term, but I'd like it to catch on because I think it's a better reading than Jordan Peterson's. Uh, let's see. Todd Stefan says, Todd McGowan mentions that capitalism is always on the verge of fascism because of the fantasy and paranoid structures in it. Could you elaborate on that? Maybe with a precise definition of fascism. That's great. Thank you, Stefan. So yeah, first of all, Stefan is quoting Todd McGowan, who's a theorist who... I have a, a huge crush on uh, I think he's great he's uh, he, I think uh, when I read uh, his the first book of his I read was enjoying what you don't have and when I read it I was like that's 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 the cure that's salvation in in the power of what I'm doing in power of theology is is what he's doing in political theory and uh, I invited him to to speak at wake and he's also a lovely guy apart from anything else but I would recommend Um, His books, both uh, Enjoying What You Don't Have and Capitalism and Desire, and also Emancipation After Hegel, are three phenomenal books. So first of all, I just wanted to say that, and then you're saying that capitalism is always on the verge of fascism because of the fantasy and the paranoid structures within it. Okay. I'm guessing, I can't remember exactly what he was thinking of that, but that makes sense the way you've described it, right? So always on the verge of fascism because of the fantasy and paranoid structure. So. The fantasy, in psychoanalysis, fantasy is a way of imagining completeness. We feel ourselves incomplete and fantasy is a way for us to imagine how we can be complete. And the problem with fantasy is that if you even get it, it doesn't work, right? So fantasy, but fantasy allows you to continue in what you're doing. So I'll give you one example. In the film Collateral uh, with uh, Tom Cruise, there's this great scene, I really like it, where uh, the, no, not, yeah, Tom Cruise. The taxi driver is, uh, he wants to set up his own business, a limo business, and at the start of the film, he's talking about it with somebody, if I can remember it. He's got a picture of a limo, and you know he's, he's wanting to save up for this, and this is his fantasy, right? He wants to get out of the taxi business, wants to own his own company, and drive stars around, and make money. And uh, he picks up this assassin, and over the course of the night, uh, the assassin's killing people and driving in his taxi. <laughs> and at some point, the taxi driver is going like, um, listen, uh, you know, he's basically judging the assassin for being an assassin, thinking he's an asshole, right? And, uh, and then the assassin says, look, well, hold on a second. He says, uh, you know, you think I'm so bad or whatever, and whatever, he says, but here, tell me this, right? I see your, your limo's there, in the picture, what? what's that about? And he doesn't really talk. He says, come on, what's it about? So you want to have your own limo business, is that it, right? And he says uh, so what have you done how much you got, how much money have you got saved like, what have you done to get there he says i'll tell you what you've done you've done nothing you've just got that dream and that dream keeps you in this taxi and in another 40 years and you're retired and you're sitting with a beer in your hand, sitting in your old couch you won't have done anything he said basically that 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 fantasy is not moving you forward it's keeping you where you are and that's kind of like how fantasy operates in some ways it actually but rather than giving us a dream that we move towards to change it can be the very thing that's that keeps us where we are and then because the fantasy always fails uh, we become paranoid and like a paranoid person is of course somebody who um, externalizes their own internal antagonism onto some external thing, right? onto some sort of other. So with the fantasy and the failure of the fantasy and it never getting happening, you seek an opposition, you seek something that gets in the way. You, 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 you want to find a reason why you can't get there and you find that reason and then you attack it. So why is that connected to fascism? Um, well, oh yeah, because the fascist structure, I, the way I define fascism in its purest sense, is that fascism is the belief in an organic, balanced whole that is being destabilized by some external force. And the fantasy is that if only we get rid of that external thing, then everything will work. That's fascism, that connects with why uh, Todd's saying that thing. And this also connects with, I think, Todd's most interesting recent uh, claim in his book, Emancipation After Hegel, where he says, um, that there is a right-wing deviation in the left. And what's the right-wing deviation in the left? It is where the left, some parts of the left, have a, what could be called a pagan fantasy of wholeness and completeness and oneness that is only uh, unattainable because of a contingent enemy. And that enemy can be an enemy that actually is a problem, but still it's not about them being a problem, it's about being the X that Prevents us from moving forward. So, in Emancipation After Hegel, Todd's ultimate, you know, it's the best critique of Marx I've read, and it's a very sympathetic critique. But it says that he says that basically within Marx's own writing, there is a rejection of something in Hegel, which is the notion that there is no balanced society. That fiction of the one, of wholeness and completeness, is the very thing that causes problems and ultimately leads to fascism and actually you have to imagine a society that rather embraces its antagonism, makes room for its antagonism and that's what Hegel calls absolute knowledge. Absolute knowledge which is the last level in, uh, in phenomenology of spirit is when you realise that the contradiction you keep trying to get rid of cannot be got rid of, and must instead be embraced and enveloped into the system itself. And there is within the left um, a right-wing deviation. Um, that, that means that the left is also very prone to fascism. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where you can, you know, Todd McGowan almost says that that Stalin is the result of this right-wing deviation within the left. Oh yeah, Helen mentions exploring a system that is beyond neurosis. Yes, beyond neurosis is the cure in psychoanalysis. Salvation is the cure in theology. Um, Democracy is the cure in in politics, Uh, you know, potentially. I I don't like the way people use the word socialism around uh, in the US, but maybe socialism is the cure politically, if you understand it rightly. Um, Yeah, beyond neurosis is is in a sense what absolute knowledge is, that which is the cure in philosophy, is the embrace of the discontent. Which is why Todd McGowan's book is called Enjoying What You Don't Have, because in one sense you enjoy your discontent. My favorite example of this is in the movie The Wild One with Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando is uh, in the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and they're in this cafe and they're all dancing, not Marlon Brando, Johnny, he's just sitting there tapping on a table, right? And this girl says to him, Johnny, Johnny, what are you rebelling against? And Johnny says, what do you got? Right, it's great, great line. Absolutely classic line. Um, and it's a kind of sense in which you can see that the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club are in the world but not of it. They are, they're enjoying their not fitting in. They are productively maladapted. So this is why I reject most forms of psychology and counseling and uh, cognitive therapies because a lot of these are designed to help you be adapted to your world. Um, when in psychoanalysis proper, the, the point is not to be adapted to your world, but rather productively maladapted to your world. So one is you enjoy your maladaption, and two, that maladaption is, is an, enables change and enables you to transform the world in an ongoing way. So that, um, that for me, that's beyond be- neurosis. Um, well, this is going quickly, this is good. Uh, maybe take a couple more oh so Paulo says do you see any similarities between Lacan's concept of this Santom uh, and Tillich's ultimate concern yes A lot of you are asking very good questions. That like you're doing what Kate did is you're asking a very good question, but then that that requires potentially us to unpack other concepts. (laughs) I just realised when I was trying to answer Kate, I was going like, oh my goodness, you know we have to define what a perverse structure is and what a psychotic structure is, and so now we'd have to maybe define what uh, Tillich's ultimate concern is. Um, But yes, so for Tillich, for just to put it into a nutshell, ultimate concern is kind of as you know, it's a central concept for Tillich, but ultimate concern is a type of orientation towards the absolute that um, is uh, towards something that takes up your entire being that you will live and die for. And funnily enough, like Tillich talks about a demonic type of ultimate concern where if you imagine a difference between two people who will, will die for their country this is a good example, maybe, is that somebody might say, I'm going to die for my country, right or wrong, whatever my country says, I will do, right? There's a type of ultimate concern to that, um, but it's uh, it's not a good ultimate concern, right? They, and Tillich would call that idolatry. But somebody else might say, I love my country and I'll die for my country. Um, uh, and my country stands for justice, democracy, and freedom. And so if the government, for example, do not stand up for those, then I will find myself at odds with them, out of my love for my country. And for, for Tillich, that is is that that is the proper type of ultimate concern because you're orienting yourself towards freedom, justice, democracy. Like What are those things? You kind of know what they are, but you can't define them. As soon as, as soon as you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, right? As soon as you meet justice on the road, kill it, or democracy or freedom i.e. if someone's selling you those things and says I've got it here it is it's not because in the words of Derrida there's always something still to come there's always something still to arrive in freedom democracy and justice so Tillich's ultimate concern is a notion of how we orient ourselves to this type of absolute that we will live and die for and yeah that definitely has some interesting connection with Lacan's notion of the Santom. So for Lacan, his, his example was James Joyce writing Ulysses or any of his books, that James Joyce was a psychotic who cured himself through his passionate uh, recreation of language. So I would have to think about that a lot more, or maybe you should think about that a lot more. If you asked the question, you might have better insights than me, but I think you're onto something. There's probably something interesting to connect those two concepts um let's see uh, oh, uh cam says if class conflict and economic inequality is the fundamental antagonism of capitalism then the real problem is that the central antagonism is never allowed to enter into mainstream public discourse absolutely Cam. Uh, first of all i miss you mate uh i, I hope we get the hangout soon really do um but uh, yeah, I think that's it has to be kept out of mainstream. I like, this is this is my critique of of the Hollywood culture is that that er- everything is designed. And what Helen said of cultural capitalism is to get us talking about anything but um, what will really challenge the system and also what would really challenge the people in Hollywood. Uh. Oh yeah, cool. It's just saying you'd like to hear me talk about Jordan Peterson again, because um, you liked the last time I talked about it. Yeah, would be interested. I, I actually would be interested to do a talk on the difference between cultural Marxism and then capitalist, or sorry, uh, what's it, cultural Marxism and capitalist, cul- cultural capitalism cultural Marxism. <laughs> there you go. I should be able to say it before I do a talk on it, but I think it would be fun because um, I do, i do think that actually there's there's a it's a it's a good critique of jordan peterson um that i've always disagreed with his critique of cultural marxism by the way one issue is simply that a successful theory does disperse into variety of fields right so anybody who is a genius in one area their work will always well nearly always penetrate into other areas so, like, uh, you know, Lacan is studied in philosophy, he studied in other theories and other areas, or Tillich, theologian, but was read and is read by philosophers. And so anybody who has a, an interesting theory, it will disperse. But the, the central idea of cultural Marxism is that intersectional, or uh, 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 what's it called, um, identitarianism, is somehow connected with Marxism but Marxism is a universalist position Marxism is fundamentally about we are all unified in a shared kind of like uh, damage from the system just that some people carry that violence so in other words it, it brings us all it's all about unity and bringing together so I do think I do think Peterson just just hasn't read very much Marx but um, and I think actually um, it's capitalism that likes people to be split that likes people to be fighting that likes to kind of create division uh, because that functions that's a utility in the words of durkheim that has a utility for society even if it has destructive elements it has a utility um, oh yeah and chris says and I'll, uh, he says so is uh, ultimate concern something undeconstructible? yeah there's a great book by john caputo that is basically connecting Derrida's work and Paul Tillich's work and it's called the I think it's the folly of God I think it's the folly of God it's basically an essay he really looks closely at Tillich's essay two types of philosophy of religion which we'll be doing a reading group I'm doing a reading group in a few weeks on that on that um, on that essay he takes that essay and he connects it with Derrida so yeah we really check it out it's a short book as well it's very very good um, Oh yeah, and Matthew says, would you ever reprint Enduring Love? No, I do have a lot of copies, but I can't sell them, but I do give them out on Patreon. So there is a way to get them via Patreon, Um, but I won't do this as a self-promotion thing. Okay, guys, that was great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being part of this. I hope that was all right. Um, If not, I can always delete it. Uh, But uh, yeah, anyway, keep the conversation going and um, I'll talk to you all again soon. Bye-bye.